just gonna launch into it. As always, just try to forget we're on mic, you know, which is incredibly <laughs> awkward when you start with like a stilted intro that's like, welcome to Michael and us. <laughs> I'm Will Sloan, um, and let's make that the intro, why don't we? Listeners may have already uh, figured out that there's something unusual about this episode. My beloved co-host, Luke, he is either on a spiritual quest or he is working on finishing the project that he's been alluding to a lot on recent episodes. So one of those two things. So for a couple episodes, uh, we're going to have some guest hosts in the house, just like when uh, Roger Ebert brought in Harry Knowles. Uh, <laughs> I saw Harry Knowles in person one time. It was terrifying. Oh my goodness! Did you did you emerge unscathed? <laughs> yes, thank God. I was in a crowd. I was in, it was in a crowded theater. Thank God. Uh, our first guest host up is a longtime friend of the podcast, host of the Harper's podcast, longtime friend of mine, Violet Luca. Nice to be here, Will. Uh, Violet has brought a great movie to talk about, a movie that's outside our usual wheelhouse of Alexandra Pelosi documentaries <laughs> and, and conservative kitsch. So I'm very excited to be getting into that soon. Uh, before we talk about that, though, something that we haven't talked about on the podcast yet, but which I know is consuming a lot of my attention as well as yours, is the new Nathan Fielder TV show, The Rehearsal, which I think has been uh, widely appreciated. It has a couple of very vocal detractors as well. It's a show that... Uh, Fucking nerds. Yeah, yeah. One, one in particular, <laughs> but we don't we don't need to name him. A show that, you know, is ready-made for discourse. I have to admit, I have not yet seen the last two episodes because I know I've heard I've heard amazing things about the last. What? I know. I know. The reason is because I'm watching it with my girlfriend and we keep having to find times when our schedules and moods align to sit down together to watch it. These are the long-term relationship issues, you know, just the everyday long-term relationship issues. But having watched most of it, the majority of it, I'm very excited to watch the rest of it. Can you describe what the rehearsal is to people who haven't seen it? Well, I'll try, but I may need a couple of times to get it right. The rehearsal is everything, so... <laughs> isn't it? It's it's all in <laughs> we're all part of it. <laughs> I was sort of talking to Will before about something I might be writing about the rehearsal, and I realized that I spoke to you as if you had seen the fourth and fifth episode so what i said will make a lot more sense okay <laughs> so yeah so the basic premise it's it's just like um nathan for you there it's a it has a reality show premise right so the idea is that nathan is helping people rehearse things with actors and real sets and helping people get through a difficult or socially awkward or even sort of like big life decision and people who if people haven't seen nathan for you which was his preceding show nathan fielder is a hometown hero a Canadian who has gone and made good in the United States. It was it was a fairly simple, easy to explain premise where it was uh, he would provide business advice to struggling small businesses. And the, the business advice would always be the most elaborate pieces of performance art. Dumb Starbucks. Dumb Starbucks is the key one where it was a struggling coffee shop. And his, his scheme was to turn it into a gallery space. So he called it Dumb Starbucks which it, it's technically a satire of Starbucks, but for all intents and purposes, it was a Starbucks. So yeah, legally it was unactionable until it was. And then like Smokers Allowed, another great concept that was again, basically performance art 
creating a bar where people could smoke, but also claiming that this is not actually a bar. This is a performance space. Right. And if you sat in it and you looked around, you were you were watching the performance. And then he went on from that to actually film an entire night at the bar and then hire a bunch of actors, memorize and recreate the actual night at the bar and turn it into an actual play. This this new show, the rehearsal is he goes and he helps people with their problems. But in the I mean, it's actually impossible to summarize in helping people with their problems. He ends up creating almost entire parallel realities with actors playing actors. Very synecdoche New York. And also the metatextual, like it becomes a story within a story within a story. And then other parts of like a previous rehearsal will come back. Nathan Fielder is a genius, just like David Cronenberg. So whatever, whatever you guys are doing, keep it up. One fucking genius every 25 years or so. I think that's that's a good pace. I mean, the rest of our cultural output is, you know, Red Green and Rick Mercer and... Hey, hey, don't say, don't talk shit about Red Green. I loved Red Green. (laughs) I'm allowed to talk shit about Red Green because I'm Canadian. If an American talked shit about Red Green, I would be very upset. But Red Green has a special relationship to Iowa because they would show the Red Green show on the PBS affiliate and he actually participated in one of the fundraising drives. Like, they actually got him and Harold to come down and they fucking said, this is the best part, Harold confused Iowa with Idaho (laughs) because the most donations were coming from Iowa and he's made a joke about potatoes and then everyone from Iowa who was like donating was calling in and being like, we're actually about corn. (laughs) Like literally I would watch it every week. Wow, not since the Beatles invaded. (laughs) Now the rehearsal, I mean, it's been pretty well received. There has been quite a bit of discourse, at least in my corners of social media about about the ethics of what nathan fielder does like putting uh, i know i know i'm, I'm <laughs> building up this straw man just to bat it down because okay, <laughs> because i mean i've i've in my day watched a fair amount of reality tv all of which is so much more monstrous than anything nathan fielder does you know he very much foregrounds the production of this and makes that the subject makes the actual manipulation of people the subject of the show as opposed to like on The Bachelor, what they do is they have these houses of 20 women who just all sit there. They don't get phones. They don't get books to read. They just have to sit there staring at each other while one of them goes on a date with the guy, their shared boyfriend. And this goes on for months. Or like The Biggest Loser, which is just an excuse to show overweight people in various stages of undress, show them sweating, show them puking, show them doing humiliating tasks. Mm-hmm. It's for the good. It's for somebody's good, right? This, this Taking the most boring thing, losing weight and dramatizing it. And also, I would say, not to spoil it, but the rehearsal after a certain point becomes specifically about Nathan's culpability. I'm a huge fan of uh, Vanderpump Rules, which I think is, you know, (laughs) the closest TV has come to the great American novel. And one of the things Mm. I love about it is, as the show goes on, obviously, they all get more and more famous, but the show doesn't actually address how famous they are. It still sort of keeps up with the ruse that they're like bartenders, or they're just striving (laughs) LA people. I mean, it, it builds, on some level, it builds success in where there are two characters, they start as bartenders, and then uh, they get to, they get to run their own place, which Lisa Vanderpump, in her noblesse oblige, lets them run. So, like, there's a sort of upward trajectory, but never on the show do they acknowledge, oh, we're famous now, like, Kim Kardashian watches us. Like, there's that never becomes part of the text. 
except on the annual live reunion episodes when they start talking about that sort of thing. So when you watch a show like that, the viewer is always playing a guessing game of, okay, why is this character dating this other character? Why does this person who has angrily cast aside the show on the last season, why have they come crawling back? It can't just be, as they say, because, you know, oh, the the bar is family. It can't just, it can't just be that. It's got to be because they want to still be on TV, but they can never say that. I mean, that's one of the things I like about Nathan Fielder. The whole thing is about wanting to be on TV. I mean, there's obviously there's an episode of Nathan for you where he is the hunk mm-hmm. classic <laughs> which is a reality show within the reality show where he you know they get a mansion they get a host very much in the vein of the bachelor it's pretty much a note for note parody of it but again all of it is just so that nathan can get better at talking to women <laughs> yeah. yeah people getting mad about the rehearsal you're misdirecting your ire there are far worse things including political things well, that you yes. could get <laughs> mad about or act on or you know and also well okay I don't know. Documentary ethics are a rich field and we don't have to wallow in there. But again, they're far worse offenders uh, than Mr. Fielder. I I agree. (laughs) And I also agree that there are more important issues like whether or not Sidney Sweeney's parents are Republicans, which is something that I've (laughs) I've been thinking about a lot this week. I I couldn't sleep. Trying to figure out how do we hold Sidney Sweeney accountable for for going to her mom's birthday party? Look, I, I could talk about Sydney Sweeney all day. I, I think she's an angel, but we have business at hand. Uh, we're talking about the classic 1967 Brazilian film, Terra M. Trance, also known as Entranced Earth. Let me know if you need help, because this film is like a gigantic meal, and it raises so many issues that are political, have to do with art and history and like a million and race and like religion and a million other things. So I I definitely sorry, but not sorry. I definitely am going to need help. And and like I say, I'm very glad to be watching something, you know, just a little bit outside my comfort zone a little bit. This is only the second film I've seen by the great Brazilian filmmaker Glauber Rocha. Glauber Rocha. Uh, sorry, please, sorry. please, please I, say I, that I, again because I'm going to rely on it. <laughs> Glauber Rocha, Glauber Rocha. With, in Brazil and Rocha, like because the R, the R in Portuguese is like <laughs> got it. Rocha. Okay, well, I I will yeah, say yeah. that I'm always learning. I'm always trying to be better. This is one of the canonical <laughs> entries in Brazil's cinema novo cycle, which is one of those national cinema movements that flourished in the mid 20th century. Kind of like how France had the new wave, how Italy had neorealism that really signaled this great formal and intellectual leap forward for the art form. Uh, Now, I understand that the Cinema Novo film sort of emerged. First of all, it was a bit of a response to, in the 50s, Brazilian cinema was dominated by Hollywood-style musicals, melodramas. The Chanchada, which is like, a Chanchada is like a Brazilian... Again, it's sort of like a musical, but again, it takes like the samba, the role of samba and carnival and Brazilian society and kind of dramatizes it. And also importantly to note, as documented in Orson Welles' famous It's All True, Brazilian carnival, it's like you have a mixing of people of different races. And in the Chanchada films, it was very much like white people in the front and then maybe some black people in the back. And it, it was like a very, it was projecting a very specific image of 
Brazil and Brazilianness, and again, just trying to ape American film. But there's a Shanshada actor in Terum Tranci, which is interesting. I'll get to that later. So how did you become interested in the Cinema Novo films? And what about them drew you to them? I took a course with Robert Stamm, who is like probably one of two courses I took in at NYU grad school that were worth my time. Everything else was a fucking waste of time. Never go to grad school. Folks. Well, uh, funny you should mention him because I was just reading his analysis of the film from Jump Cut, uh, a canonical 1967 article on the subject. 1976 yeah, yeah. article. My apologies. Yeah. So again, it's maybe a, a way to sort of start the conversation is the way that Robert Stam started the conversation you know, drawing the parallels between Brazil and the United States. And I think sometimes it's very fast. It's a very facile, very easy thing to do um, to sort of just be like, oh, yeah, uh, fucking Jair Bolsonaro is the Trump of the tropics. But there's some really interesting parallels between the US and Brazil. So Brazil is the largest country in Latin America. And also that's why it's called Latin America and not like Hispanic America because they speak Portuguese. Again, something people just kind of overlook because uh, Latin American history and culture is just kind of taken for granted. But so in Brazil, the sort of foundational moment of the nation, like the version of Thanksgiving is La Primera Misa, which is when the indigenous people you know, they, the first indigenous people that Portuguese explorers encountered took mass with them. And again, you know, sure, the Tupi number of people who happened to be on the beach that day celebrated mass with the explorers. Like, it's a very, it's a very false image, but the racial dynamics of the United States are very similar. Both countries abolished slavery very late. The size and the reliance of an extractive resources, the policy of like, genocide. And because both countries are former colonies, they are kind of fundamentally shaped by state violence in a way that I don't think the old world is, let's say. And also, I hasten to add that, you know, sort of the, the differences between the US and Brazil come down to the fact that Brazil didn't become a super superpower like the United States did. And there are pretty significant differences between like Protestant and Catholic colonization. So like the English mercantilist view is let's sell these naked savages some clothes. And the Spanish and the French and the Portuguese were like, let's fuck these savages until they're white. Like, it's a very different, it's like a very gross, uh, different, uh, but, but notable approach because in places colonized by the Spanish, the Portuguese, French, there is this really elaborate racial caste system that doesn't exist in the United States. Um, the result may be the same where black people are on the bottom, so to speak. But the fact is that there are these nuances that often when people from the U.S. try to look at things in Latin America, there are kind of these nuances that get lost. And also, I think because of this like mixing and the idea of like the Brazilian race being someone who is of indigenous Portuguese and black descent, Latin America and Brazil sort of by extension kind of underwent like postmodernism in the 16th century. And it's been dealing with it in really interesting ways that just the US in the, hit the US in the 90s. So I think maybe perhaps this film is kind of speaking to that and specifically like the Cinema Novo tradition is kind of growing out of 
this fusion and celebrating these parts of Brazilian history and Brazilian culture, indigenous peoples, uh, people who are illiterate, uh, have nothing, who lived in the Northeast, and black people, that uh, black Brazilians, and bringing these things together in a really interesting way. There were kind of like three phases in the Cinema Novo. So the first one was sort of like Vida Secas, which is like Barren Lies set in the Northeast. Again, sort of drawing on like the impoverished. Okay, now I'm just saying too much. Now I'm just <laughs> no, please, I love much. it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> we've we've got a whole we've got a whole country to summarize here. <laughs> I know. I have to nutshell this pretty fucking quickly. But like, so Vida Secas, which is like this is a uh, Nelson Pereira dos Santos, who's like the guy who kind of kicked off the Cinema Novo movement. And the first phase of Cinema Novo was like films about the northeast of brazil which is unlike the u.s the northeast of brazil is like the historically impoverished place where a lot of indigenous a lot of black people live and you know again chronically underdeveloped and underdevelopment is kind of a big theme across latin america but but in particular it within a country of extreme wealth and extreme poverty the poverty is is almost exclusively located in the northeast or it's located in the northeast of Brazil in a way that's kind of glaring, I should say. And so Vita Secas is kind of, you know, showing the lives of this family who live in the northeast and drawing on like traditional stories like the Cordell tradition, like again, giving voice to people who had not been seen on the screen before. And then there's the second phase of which term Trancy is one, where it's sort of like political power. And then it's important to note that the second phase, these films were made after the coup. And the military coup is something that we have to talk about. And again, actually, there's a very big difference between the United States and the and Brazil because um, uh, the United States did not have an explicit military dictatorship where people were disappeared and et cetera, et cetera, and funded by the CIA. Well, I believe they may have played some role in the deposition of I shudder to think how I might pronounce his name, but the left wing president Hoa Goulart. <laughs> Wrong. Joao Goulart. <laughs> who, who was deposed in 1964, succeeded by a variety of hardline right-wing presidents, basically until 2003, which is the next time anyone left of center took over, although perhaps that's an oversimplification. Yeah, because the, 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 the dictatorship officially ended in 1985. It kind of just couldn't support itself anymore. But yes, it was like the extreme hardline right-wingers for quite a long time. Um, and right now, I would call Jair Bolsonaro, he's openly praised, said he wants to go back to the military dictatorship, uh, which again, there was insane violence. The class divides in society grew worse. There was extreme racism. There are a lot of things that people like Lula, who's sort of the left wing hero of any story, really. <laughs> this is a former Marxist, a cool guerrilla guy. You know, he really tried to repair those gaps in society. But I think, again, think of Latin America, or even, you know, like another country, just bring in another country just to make this even more complicated, like Bolivia, you know, just because you have one sort of populist leader, you're not going to fix all of the problems that have been entrenched since the 16th century. Right. You're not going to be able to repair the environmental damage, the, the social damage, the cultural damage, etc. So well, in the wake of the coup of 1964, all political parties were abolished except for two, the ruling National Renewal Alliance Party, and then a sort of managed opposition party that was effectively powerless called the Brazilian Democratic Movement. 
And during this time, many artists and thinkers were exiled or tortured or worse. Needless to say, the U.S. supported the coup in a variety of ways. Uh, This film, which does not comment on the coup directly, but of course does comment on it a lot indirectly, was initially banned in Brazil, although it played to great acclaim at the 1967 Cannes Film Festival and uh, is still one of the quintessential Brazilian films. Before we get to the film, though, one last question I have about Cinema Novo. Uh, You you talked a lot about the uh, thematic and political thrust of the films. Is it like the French New Wave where there were sort of some some shared aesthetics between the films? Well, I think it was more of a thematic. So Glauber Rocha himself wrote this really important manifesto called The Aesthetics of Hunger. And I can read a little bit from it because I think... You know, it, the, overall, it kind of talks about how in, in Latin America, the, the role of underdevelopment, the role of like hunger and how, you know, Europeans attempt to approach it. And he's attempting to define a way for Latin Americans and Brazilians to approach this, this problem, this pervasive problem. And he writes, Cinema Novo teaches that the aesthetics of violence are revolutionary rather than primitive. The moment of violence is the moment when the colonizer becomes aware of the existence of the colonized. Only when he is confronted with violence can the colonizer understand, through horror, the strength of the culture he exploits. As long as he does not take up arms, the colonized man remains a slave. The first policeman had to die before the French became aware of the Algerians. In moral terms, this violence is not filled with hatred, nor is it linked to the old colonizing humanism. The love that this violence encompasses is as brutal as violence itself, because it is not the kind of love which derives from complacency or contemplation, but rather a love of action and transformation. And I think that is actually maybe the best way to kind of describe the style, what unified these movements. They were aimed at transformation. They were aimed at kind of tearing down and reacting to and creating a new cinematic language that you could say, oh, well, this borrows from Italian neorism. That's true to an extent, but also it's its own thing. And I don't know, I think there are a lot of, in, in terms of new waves, <laughs> national new waves, I think the Brazilian new wave is perhaps one of the most interesting and it gets short shrift because I don't know, we need to talk about Breathless again. So <laughs> very happy to talk about this. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I have definitely been guilty of that in the past, but uh, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the plot of the film. It's set in a fictional Latin American country called El Dorado and deals with a power struggle between two equally corrupt political parties from seemingly opposite ends of the spectrum. (laughs) This is about horseshoe theory. This movie's about horseshoe theory. (laughs) It's structured in a flashback style. The main character is Paulo Martins, a journalist and poet. He has a relationship with both party leaders. In the beginning... He's a supporter of the right-wing candidate for Senate named Porforio Diaz. Uh, He's also involved in an affair with Diaz's mistress, Silvia. After Diaz is elected, Paulo moves away, recedes from politics, until he meets a left-wing activist named Sarah, and she is supporting a left-wing, or at least liberal, populist, uh, Philippe Vieira, who's running for governor. He represents this great hope of an alternative to this right-wing rule. So having once thrown himself into supporting the right-wing candidate, he now becomes this supporter of the left-wing candidate. But when Vieira wins, he rules like any establishment liberal would. He has connections with the landlords and all the other dirty money, big donor type people. 
at this point, Paolo decides to devote himself once again to La Dolce Vita uh, until he's lured back by Sarah into political life. The right-winger Diaz has presidential ambitions, and he has the support of this vast multinational company called Explint, which... Explinchi, which is such so fun to say. It it, it stands for (laughs) Company for International Exploitation. Uh, Sarah uh, persuades him. He makes this propaganda film against Diaz. And after doing so, he joins the fervor for a presidential campaign for Vieira, the supposed lefty who had previously disappointed him. You know, the film basically suggests that, you know, it's this it's this constant cycling back and forth between these two equally inadequate candidates, both of whom are feeding from the same trough. You know, they're both connected to these wealthy imperial interests. And, and more importantly, are willing to throw anyone over in order to remain in power. It's baser than I want money. It's just, I want me. Now, Robert Stamm, in his 1976 article, the film has a very memorable final shot of Paolo holding a gun. And he wrote, The film's final shot of Paolo with upraised rifle was interpreted as a call for the kind of armed guerrilla struggle that led Che Guevara and Fidel Castro to victory in Cuba. But in fact, as we shall see, the film is more interested in demystifying the liberal politics that led up to the coup than in proposing any specific revolutionary strategy. So, you know, when when I watched the movie, I mean, not not message, but the feeling I got from it was sort of, don't blame me, I voted for Kodos. Um... (laughs) Yeah, I, 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 I know. Um, That's a very literal-minded take. It, t- it, it totally um, is, and I'm, and I'm not proud of it. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious. <laughs> what do you get out of what the film is saying besides that? And I'm sure you could answer this a million, a million ways. But like, I, I feel watching the movie this overwhelming feeling of hopelessness and despair, which is not a knock on the film. Well, I think it's critical of the idea that art or journalism can create revolution. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it's grappling with. It's not interested in the dialectic. It's it's saying that we need to progress beyond sort of what is known right now. And if you try to sort of work within the bounds of what we are given, you're doomed to fail. And we know that Paolo fails from the beginning. And again, this is all Robert Stamp. He points out the many similarities between this film and Citizen Kane, which I think is really interesting to note because, you know, the flashback structure, the film that Paolo makes about Diaz, which is basically like the newsreel from Citizen Kane, you know, even the weird kind of Oedipal tension. And this is a film about poetics that is poetic. And also a, a film that is constantly fighting with itself formally. You you can't even kind of be like, oh, certain characters have certain styles of film associated with them because it's constantly shifting. It's constantly fighting it with itself. And like that uneasy feeling that a movie, this this movie is uncomfortable with itself and it's uncomfortable with everything around it. It's uncomfortable that it is a, it had to be made. I think that plus the idea that you can make all the revolutionary art you want, but you aren't going to change shit is valuable. And that's one of the many things I take out of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I hate to bring up Godard again, but it's impossible, you know, it's impossible for me not to think of this kind of movie without thinking of the sorts of things that he was trying to do with Goren in the in the 70s, you know, trying to create this radical Marxist cinema that sort of through its through its sheer boredom and abrasiveness 
would shock people out of their complacency and and cause them to revolt. This film is not boring. Well, but I mean that's the thing though. I mean this is it's it's doing very it's doing a very different strategy because it is a sort of Godard and Goran were trying to their strategy was to strip away all prettiness, all artifice from the thing and hopefully that would like shock people out of their complacency. But this goes a very different route. I mean it is very poetic and beautiful and you move like a dream through it. I, I find it moving to watch these mid-century movies that are trying to come up with some sort of aesthetic strategy for creating a revolutionary change. You know, again, there's so many different things going on aesthetically, historically, culturally. Like, even the first shot of the film, there's a shot of the sea, and you cl- see the coastline of Brazil, and there's candomblé music. And candomblé is like a, a, reli- a syncretic religion that's, you know, sort of fuses indigenous African and Catholic saints and, and faiths together. And so you're seeing what the Portuguese explorers first saw of Brazil, like a shot of the earth, land in anguish. Like every frame has some insane shit like that going on. This is at once incredibly didactic, but also very poetic and like operatic and and thoughtful. Again, it's it's hard to know where to start. And I mean, this preoccupation with what makes Brazil, what what Brazil is like, for example, like the first shot of Diaz, the right-wing politician, it it's recreates the first mass, the La Primera Misa, like that Thanksgiving moment where he's walking from the sea on the beach toward an indigenous man. And he has a cross and he has this big black flag. And it's saying like, the past is not far away. The past is very close. The past is happening right now. Yeah, I just think, again, like the film hates that it has to exist, which is cool. I, I like that. And again, it's not certainly not boring. Well, the movie, see, in terms of just the role that art plays in politics, the movie obviously seems to be saying that none of his poetry, nothing that he can do with the with the art that we have at our disposal right now is going to do anything about this. Do you think, though, that the movie is pessimistic about can culture and art ever play a role in this? Or is it suggesting that maybe art almost has to be reinvented and built from the ground up in some way? Well, I think Hosha himself probably would argue that you can't have one without the other. In order to to have a revolution, there has to be like this cultural revolution that accompanies it. So I think the film, it won't settle on a single approach, which is part of the message. Mm -hmm. I think a political message as well, where it's like, you can't just use one weird trick (laughs) to get out of capitalism. Like you can't, you can't escape the legacy of colonialism, this racism. And I mean, I would just say, again, just to throw out another perhaps too long historical tangent, but before the military coup took place, there was like um, this peasant workers league. And in Brazil, again, this intense racial caste system, all the landowners are white, And basically, you'd have tenant farmers, you know, mixed race or uh, people struggling to get by, eking out a living, living on, you know, they're they're homeless. Like there's a man in the film who says, like, I have seven children. I have no home. And that and those the peasant workers movement was gaining steam. They were specifically concerned about the land, the land itself, like this thing that is supposed to nourish you and again, because of the vagaries of like Spanish and Portuguese colonialism, the land and extractive resources are like the most important thing that you can have. 
the again the vagaries and sort of like how capitalism exists in Brazil is is a bit different from the way it does in like the US or Canada. Like it's not it's not to say that people aren't taking minerals out of the earth in Canada. It just is is fundamentally different. And I think the focus on the land and how people are associated with the land is perhaps not unique to mid-century aggressively political cinema, but how it depicts Paolo's relationship to them. And that this is somebody who is fighting for the people and the name of the people and has this idea of revolution. And at every turn, every time he meets someone who is a poor tenant farmer or is black or whatever, he's just like, this guy's fucking idiot. Like he, at one point he <laughs> says, can you imagine if Geronimo was in power? And Geronimo, of course, being like an indigenous name, you know, that takes place at this big political rally for Vieira. And there are different figures there. So there's a Catholic priest who's kind of giving giving the church's blessing. And then there's a senator there, this extremely old white guy. Uh, again, who, he's actually a chanchada actor, which again, in, in the film incorporating things. It would would you say he's cast symbolically in that sense? Yeah, I would, yeah, definitely. And he even kind of like dances around and does like a little samba. Because everybody, it's like a big party. It's a big circus. It's a big event, again, for these dumb, people who are illiterate and they otherwise how the fuck else would you get your attention like you just gotta make them dance right and so it's it's this big spectacle and in it you know like the senator is talking about you know he's very willing to set the people up to fail let's say and and to to deny the the clear problems that exist in the country to sell the country out to foreign uh, exploitation basically he represents brazil's president before the military coup or before before the guy who got cooed <laughs> Uh, Kubishek, who is who is very much uh, focused on developmentalism, which is like this, you know, again being like Brazil is undeveloped. Let's bring all this industry in. Let's turn away from uh, farming. Let's kind of bring everything up to speed. But then, of course, there was again because these social problems weren't addressed. These these you know racial, cultural, class divides were not repaired. It just sort of exacerbated existing problems. And inflation was a huge issue. Film for our times. <laughs> So, like, there are no valiant people here, even if their intentions are good. There's nobody that you can really hang on to or idealize, because that's not how you should live your life. You shouldn't look to art to do that for you. Aprenderon! Aprenderon! Dominarei esta terra! Botarei estas histéricas tradições em ordem! Going back to the senator really quickly, you know, and that developmentalist mindset, Cinema Nova was able to emerge because of that political era. And it's important to note that, like, films were not necessarily censored, but they were suppressed. And one of the most interesting things, I think, in the third phase of Cinema Nova which is like the Tropicalia phase and like insert the Caetano Voloso music right now because fuck, it's a jam, um, is that filmmakers kind of played around with it. They kind of did a dance with it, these rules. And like, if people listening are sort of like overwhelmed by this film, which fair enough, fair enough. I've just sort of been like, blah, 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 blah. Um, I would highly recommend perhaps a more accessible Cinema Novo film, or at least post-coup film, is How Tasty Was My Little Frenchman, which, so nudity was not allowed in any Brazilian films, except for these disgusting, like, porno chanchadas were just like the 70s version of like the shitty musicals. Uh, except for 
there was like fucking in them so so wait they there there was like a, a designated sort of like porn sex type film and then there were normal films and there could be no sort of interim between them yeah right so it, again because the those weren't pushing against the boundaries in a way that was dangerous right. for the dictatorship right so the film how tasty was my little frenchman it's set when Brazil before Brazil became a Portuguese colony when there were still like French and Portuguese and Spanish and English people kind of coming through seeing what they could do and it's set you know this French guy is captured by Tupinamba tribe which is like one of the indigenous peoples that lived in Brazil before it was Brazil and they're all naked and so the the joke of it is that like okay so we're we're making this transgressive film but you can't put clothes on the actors <laughs> Because they have, like, you can't, just, like, it's not historically accurate. And, like, to the credit of, like, the, the censor board, they allowed La Chinois into the country because they were like, well, this is clearly making fun of the Marxists. Like, fuck them. Like, it's, so it's like, I think, I think an important thing to note when thinking about Latin American cinema and thinking about just, like, art under dictatorships in general is that the rules are not so hard and fast as you may think. And sometimes the assholes will give, like, the leftists a bone, <laughs> so to speak. And, you know, so, yeah, there's a really rich political history in Latin America. And hopefully I've not terrified everyone uh, talking very fast uh, far far from it i i mean first of all thank you for bringing the, thank you for coming to the podcast again first of all thank you for bringing this movie which uh, despite what i said earlier i actually did enjoy a great deal i mean it's it's such a it's such an exciting and alive movie full of ideas and thank you also for just explaining cinema novo to me and to the listeners because it's not quite the name brand that certain other national cinemas uh, are uh, but there's so much to discover there, and it's just a really exciting terrain. Oh, there is one thing that I wanted to mention. The figure of Paolo, who is a, both a poet and a journalist, and at one point he, you see him taking a shot, a, a, a still photograph through a window, um, is very clearly meant to be Rocha himself. So Rocha before, like, to, to, to mention the French New Wave again, sorry, uh, is that a lot of the a lot of the filmmakers associated with the movement, including Rocha himself, were film critics. And uh, it's interesting because Rocha said in an interview that he didn't like like the Cahiers du Cinema era of like Godard and Truffaut because it was too <laughs> right wing. Gives you a sense of like what this movie's all about. But he wrote this beautiful line that is always burned in my mind, and it's like. God damn, I would like cut off my right arm to write anything good as half as this. And he he dismissed, you know, Black Orpheus, which is kind of like held up as like the <laughs> Brazilian film, even though it's not actually Brazilian. Um, he said he called it coconut milk in a Coca-Cola bottle, which is just <laughs> such a fucking sick burn. Beautiful. It's just like, so he's a yeah, very smart guy, died really young, sucks. Check out his other movies, though. <laughs> <laughs> Café 
Maria de Asa Branca Meu nome é Estelinha, é inocência Meu nome é Osso Antônio Vieira Conselheiro de Peixote Eu sou o samba, vivo ao cinema Vivo ao cinema novo 